Welcome back, everyone, to this Mercy House University series, uh, How God Explains Everything. Uh, last episode, episode one, we introduced the overall series that we're going to be looking at a series of arguments for the existence of God, and that these arguments together will provide a cumulative case uh, that will be strong evidence uh, for uh, that claim. So today, uh, on this episode, we have our first uh, argument, and this is the argument from contingency. So Patrick, what is the argument from contingency? Well, Austin, an argument from contingency, and really this is like a family of arguments, which will kind of be a common theme, I think, each uh, episode when we look at, we'll, we'll talk about an argument, but it's really going to be like a, a kind of argument or a, a type of strategy for, for thinking about God's existence, a, a sort of general pathway. Uh, but that aside... An argument from contingency is an argument that tries to establish that there is a necessary being, so that's the goal, show that there is a necessary being who is the cause or explanation of all of the stuff that exists that might not have existed. And that's like all the stuff that we're familiar with, right? Like tables and chairs and rocks and protons and people. Like all for each of these things that we uh, that are kind of ordinary objects that we interact with on a on a regular basis, uh, take any one of those things that thing might not have existed. Well, then when you th- start to think about all of them together, you you might wonder, well, why is there any of them? Uh, why does anything exist at all? And the argument from contingency kind of looks at all of those things that might not have existed. That's what uh, it is for something to be contingent. It's uh, something that can exist, but also can fail to exist. And it's it tries to establish from the fact that there are these contingent objects that there must also be a necessary being. Um, I have to also put in here a note that this is the first argument for the existence of God that I ever thought about before I knew about God I remember it's the first like philosophical memory I have uh, lying awake in bed. I guess I must have been four because I learned about God when I was five. And uh, I remember wondering where people came from. And I couldn't think of a good answer. I thought I was trying to think about like things that might have designed people, but none of the things that I could think of were things that wouldn't have also been designed by people and I didn't like the circular explanation and so I couldn't come up with like a good answer for my little four-year-old uh, mind but that, that was like a sort of you know proto uh, argument from contingency that that just didn't reach its conclusion uh, anyway so that's that's what an argument from contingency is what would be the alternative to being contingent Oh, good question. So yeah, so I mentioned that a contingent being is one that can fail to exist, but also can exist. A necessary being is the kind of alternative. A necessary being is one that uh, could not fail to exist. It exists, you might say, in every possible scenario. Any any scenario you can think of, uh, or any scenario that's legitimately possible, 
the necessary being would exist in that scenario. Um, you can also think of like, I guess, impossible be beings, things that are perhaps conceivable but could not possibly exist. Um, I mean, of the things that exist, obviously there are no impossible beings because those are things that couldn't possibly exist. Uh, so really of all the things that exist, the categories of necessary and contingent have to, uh, be exhaustive, right? Everything either has to be necessary such that it, it, it couldn't fail to exist or contingent such that it could fail to exist. That's an exhaustive, uh, divide between those two, those two things. So, uh, how exactly does an argument from contingency show that there is a necessary being? So the general schema, or the general approach, is kind of like this. You start with a, a causal principle, or a principle that says something about how contingent objects, or how some facts about contingent objects, have to have causes or explanations. So you look around at, at, the, at the ordinary objects that you're familiar with or think about some facts about them and you think those, the, the existence of those objects or the objects themselves have to have causes or there has to be explanations for the existence of those objects. Uh, so that's like a, a causal principle, a principle that tells you the objects have to, the existence of the objects has to be explained uh, or some other facts about the objects has to be explained. And then you show how some of those objects, maybe one of the objects or some group of them, can't have been caused or explained by any other contingent object or any other contingent fact or something like that. There can't, there can't be a contingent explanation for that contingent object or that uh, contingent fact. So if, if there, there's some portion of contingent reality, we'll call it, the, the part of reality that, could, that exists but could have failed to exist, if there's some portion of contingent reality that can't itself be explained by any portion of contingent reality, then there, the explanation for it has to lie at least in part outside of contingent reality. So it's got to be explained by something that's real, but that's not contingent, and we just said a minute ago that uh, the distinction between necessary and contingent exhausts all of reality. So if the explanation for a contingent reality lies in part in something outside of contingent reality, then it's got to lie in necessary reality. That is, there has to be something that's both real and necessary. And that's kind of the way the argument works in general. Now, there are obviously different ways that you can try and uh, make it precise. You can use different princip causal principles, different principles about uh, how objects or facts have to be explained or caused. You can look at different portions of contingent reality. And so different um, arguments from contingency specifically will kind of do things differently, but that's the general approach. What? Uh, what does the causal principle look like? What does that mean? Yeah, so like I said, different versions have been put forth by different uh, philosophers and theologians. I'll just give you one example. 
So just for the sake of ease, we'll look at one version of a causal principle and then kind of um, set forth the argument or, or give a, a sketch of the argument using that, that version. Uh, so this version looks at facts concerning the existence of contingent things, uh, which sounds a little bit wordy. But just remember, a contingent thing is a thing that could have failed to exist. And this is like all of the ordinary objects that you're familiar with, your car, your house, your, all your family members, your dog, you know, whatever you interact with in your daily life for the most part is a contingent thing. So there are a lot of contingent facts concerning those contingent things, like facts about them that could have been, uh, could have failed to be facts. Uh, well, the fact that those things exist in general are contingent facts because these are contingent things. So the causal principle that in question we have here says this, every contingent fact concerning the existence of contingent things has an explanation. So take an example. Uh, Justin, sitting next to me, exists. He's a contingent thing. Sorry, Justin, you're no, you're no necessary being. Checks. Um, well, the fact that Justin exists is itself a contingent fact because, right, Justin could have failed to exist. So there's some possible scenario in which Justin, the, the fact that Justin exists is, is false or there is no fact that Justin exists. Um, okay, so the fact that Justin exists has an explanation, clearly. Uh, we wouldn't want to say that the fact that Justin exists is like a brute fact or an unexplained fact. Uh, and that's going to be the same for any kind of contingent entity or contingent object that you want to point to. And for any fact about and any the facts about their any existence. contingent things. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so... That causal principle appeals to the need to explain why any contingent thing or group of contingent things exists at all. And we can actually think about all the contingent things taken together. Take all of them. Given that causal principle, there should be an explanation as to the fact that those contingent things exist. Because the causal principle says... Every contingent fact concerning the existence of contingent things has an explanation. And the fact that all the contingent things that in fact exist, exist, is clearly a contingent fact. Because some of them might have failed to exist, and so then it wouldn't have been the case that all of, them, all of these particular things exist. So there must be an explanation as to why all of the contingent things that in fact exist, exist. Why are all those things there? Uh... Simply put, why are there these things rather than some other things? Or why is there, are there these things rather than even nothing? Well, intuitively, the fact that, the, that uh, these contingent things exist, that all these contingent things exist, couldn't be adequately explained just by the causal activity of one or more of those very contingent things. So take, for example... Uh, a more limited case. There's the fact that Justin exists, Austin exists, and I exist, Patrick. Now, we wouldn't want to say that that fact could be explained by the causal activity, uh, it could be solely explained just by the causal activity of, say, Justin. 
maybe, uh, you know, su- surprise, surprise, it could turn out that Justin is the father of, of Austin and myself. Uh, and then the fact that Austin and I exist could be explained by the causal activity of Justin. But it couldn't be the case that the fact that Justin, Austin, and I exist is explained solely by Justin's causal activity, because then Justin would be explaining his own existence. And clearly that's something that we don't like the sound of, right? There's a circularity there that seems very problematic. So then go back to the the existence of all contingent things. The same kind of logic is going to apply. Maybe there could be one contingent thing that... uh, explains the existence of all the other contingent things, but it's not going to explain the existence of itself. So there's got to be something outside the class of all the contingent objects that explains them. Well, there must therefore be a necessary being. That's part of the total explanation for why there are contingent things. And namely, why there are the contingent things that there are. So... Let me make sure I'm following this. Yeah, there's so, a lot of jargon here, so <laughs> yeah. it's good to right. to take stock. So take any like group or collection of things. If we want to explain why that whole group or collection exists, it seems like we can't appeal to anything inside the group or the collection because it would have to, in some sense, explain its own existence in order to explain the existence of the whole group, and that just seems crazy. Yeah, I think I think the right way to put it is that you can't only appeal to something inside the group, right? Because oh, like, okay. you can appeal to something in the group to explain something else in the group. Like if the group is your family, uh, you can appeal to your parents to explain why you exist, the, to their causal activity to explain your existence. But you can't only appeal to think to something in the group or to things in the the group to explain the existence of everything the in the group, group the whole yeah. group. Okay. And so, because at some point you're going to run into circularity, right? And so, applying that to the case of contingent things, you're saying, like, look, consider the group of all the contingent things that there are, whatever those things are. Uh, it seems like there should be some explanation about why all those contingent things exist because they're contingent; they didn't have to exist. Yeah. But since you can't appeal only to something in the group of contingent things to explain why the whole group exists. You have to appeal to at least one thing that's not in the group of contingent things. Yeah. But since that's the group of all the contingent things, that one thing that's not in the group has to be a, a non-contingent thing. It has to be a necessary thing. Exactly, yeah. Okay. That's very well put. So yeah, we just like we were saying earlier, anything that's not contingent is necessary. Uh, so if, since you have to appeal to something outside of the group of all contingent things to explain its existence, that means you have to appeal to a necessary thing, uh, because it's a thing that by definition is not within the group of contingent things. Okay. So this causal principle that we're using, uh, let me see if I, uh, how did we state it? We said every contingent fact concerning the existence of contingent things has an explanation. Um, why should we believe that? Why should we think that that causal principle or something like it is true? Great question. Yeah, so this that's obviously a backbone of any argument from contingency is that kind of causal principle. And I think there are several different reasons here. Yeah, I should have already said, and I'll say here, that I'm, uh, I'm borrowing heavily from the work of Joshua Rasmussen, a philosopher who has published uh, fairly extensively 
on the argument from contingency and you can find a version of the argument like this and some another version as well in his book uh, how reason leads to God uh, but these this uh, these remarks right here come from him and a, a bit from Alexander Proust as well another philosopher um, okay but so why should we believe any causal principle much less this one well for one, you might just think it's obvious. Think about any group of contingent objects, any group you might want to pick, your family, a collection of baseballs, or, uh, I don't know, the houses on your street or something like that. It's For any group of contingent objects you think about, it just seems obvious that there has to be an explanation or cause of their existence. The fact that they exist has to be explained. It couldn't just uh, be an unexplained uh, like coincidence or something like that, right? Or at least it just seems like very, very unintuitive yes. to say like, oh, this thing exists for like no reason. For at all. no reason at all. Yeah. So it just seems like it, it enjoys a great amount of intuitive support. Uh, so that's one reason right there. Um. It also, you might see, and I, th I think this is very plausible, that a, a principle like this enjoys a lot of explanatory support. So think about all of the contingent objects you've ever uh, come in contact with. Well, it seems like all of them have had explanations for their existence. Have you ever come across a contingent object that was unexplained so far as you could tell? Uh, un unlikely, I think. I would I'd go so far as to guess that nobody <laughs> listening has ever encountered an unexplained contingent object. Uh, and if they did, it would be it would have been big news, you know. <laughs> so the best explanation for our observations, for the fact that every contingent object we've ever experienced has had an explanation, is that this is true in general. We talked about this last episode. That often the best explanation for uh, regularities in our experience is some kind of universal generalization. So just to clarify a certain point, when you say like, well, we, we don't encounter, you know, contingent things that don't have explanations, you, you don't mean like, well, I mean, sometimes we encounter contingent things where we like don't know what the explanation is. Right. right. And you might say, I have no explanation for that. But that's not what you mean. You're saying like, there literally is no explanation to even, in principle, ever be found for why this thing exists. Yeah, we've nobody encounters contingent things such that they know that the thing is unexplained. Yeah. They may you may encounter some contingent things such that you are unaware of what the explanation for the thing's existence is. Uh, yeah, so that's a good distinction. Um, okay, so I think a causal principle like this uh, is a good explanation of our experience. Last reason in favor of a causal principle like this is if something like if nothing like this is true, if there if no version of a of a similar causal principle is true, then a lot of strange things would follow in terms of how we ought to reason about our world. For example, we would have no reason not to expect, uh, say for example, large numbers of zoo animals to appear in our living room for no reason. Uh, likewise, for all you know, it might be that your perceptual experience right now, what, how the world appears to you, could be, uh, 
uncaused and unexplained. It might be your experiences might be uh, just these, conti- random, these events. random events that are uncaused and unexplained. So you could you it might be that what you ought to believe is some kind of skeptical hypothesis that you can't really know what's going on in the world. So, like for example, I think I can see Austin sitting near me right now. But if we if we don't endorse this like causal principle, then you might think, well, there's no reason for me to think that I'm not just having a random, totally unexplained hallucination of Austin mm-hmm. rather than my experience of Austin being explained by Austin's actually being there. Right. So last weird kind of consequence, anytime you think you have a decent explanation for some observation, uh, say for example, you meet a new person and you think, well, the best explanation of their being this person is that uh, they have parents who brought them into existence. Actually, that's no more likely than that there's no explanation for their existence. That Say they just popped into existence unexplained. Uh, well, that's certainly not the way that we reason about the contingent objects around us, like the people and the, and other objects that we encounter. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there are several reasons right there to think that, uh, some kind of causal principle, maybe this one or maybe something nearby is true. Okay. So we seem to have a good reason just from all of our normal everyday life experience that, we should think that there is this causal principle, right? That things don't just exist for no reason whatsoever. Um, But how does that get us all the way back to the necessary being? Yeah, great. So I kind of sketched it earlier, but let's, let's set the argument out in a little bit more detail here. So start with that causal principle. Every contingent fact concerning the existence of contingent things has an explanation. Well, take the fact that there are, or ever were even, the very contingent things that there are or ever were. So think about the fact that everything that's ever existed and does exist has and does exist. Call this um, the big fact. Well, the big fact is itself a contingent fact concerning the existence of contingent things. It's a fact that might not have held if some of those things hadn't existed. So given the causal principle that we've said seems true, the big fact has an explanation. Okay, so we've got to that point. The the fact that all the things that exist and have ever existed... That fact has an explanation. All the contingent things. Yeah, the contingent things. Excuse me. Thank you. So the big fact has an explanation. Well, no fact concerning the existence of contingent things can be explained just or solely in terms of one or more of those very things it contains. This is the point that we were kind of talking about earlier. If you want to look at the fact that Justin and Austin and I exist, you can't explain that fact solely in terms of uh, Justin, some uh, facts about Justin or Austin or I. But every contingent thing is contained within the big fact. So if, you, if no fact concerning the existence of contingent things can be explained solely in terms of one or more of the things it contains, but every contingent thing is contained within the big fact, 
then it's got to be the case that the big fact is explained at least in part by something that is not contingent. That is something that's necessary. All right, so that gets us to that there must be a necessary being, namely one that explains at least in part the existence of all the contingent things there are and ever have been. All right, so that's kind of the basic argument, I yeah. take it. Yeah. All right. Now, are there any objections to this argument? There are, and I think the most common objections focus on the idea that uh, the existence of, of the, a fact concerning the existence of contingent things has to be explained at least in part by something outside of that fact, as it were. So people will try to to figure out ways that a fact concerning the existence of contingent things could be explained just or solely by the things contained within that fact. So here's one example. You might think that the explanation of the big fact, the fact that all the thing all the contingent things that that exist and ever have existed do exist. Uh, you might think the explanation of that fact just consists of all the individual explanations of the existence of each contingent thing, each of which could itself be a contingent thing. So take every single contingent thing in the big fact and then ask yourself, why does that thing exist? And it might be that some other contingent thing in the big fact explains the one that you're thinking about. And, okay, well, one worry would be that eventually you're going to come back to some original contingent thing that's unexplained, but that might not be the case. Maybe the, the uh, number of things here is infinite, and we go back forever. forever. And then every contingent thing would have an explanation of its... Every individual contingent thing would have a contingent explanation of its existence... And the explanation of its existence would be contained within the big fact. But uh, you could think the big fact is explained by all these little individual explanations. So in response, usually uh, the advocate of this argument, the argument from contingency, will point out something like this. That any explanation of a collection of contingent facts has to consist at least partly of something outside that collection of facts. Which is something we've kind of talked about. something we've, we've talked about already. So, for example, if we want to explain why Austin and Justin and I exist, we can't do so just by explaining why Austin exists, explaining why uh, I exist, and explaining why Justin exists, without referring to something outside of uh, Austin and Justin and I. Um, we've got to refer to something outside of that fact to make sense of the entire fact itself. So the pushback here is to say that, look, even if you can give individual explanations for the existence of each contingent thing, that's different than explaining the big fact, the existence of all the contingent things taken as a group. Mm -hmm. And one way some people think about this is like, well, look, if you've got like an infinite series of contingent things, since everything in the series is contingent, it sort of seems like the whole series is itself contingent. And yeah, so you can like still it. sort of meaningfully ask, like, well, 
why do we have this infinite series rather than some other infinite series or no infinite series at all? Right. Why is there something? Why is there this series rather than a, a different series? Yeah, totally. So here's another worry that someone might have about this argument. You might think like, well, all we've done is shown that there's a necessary being of some sort. But why think that the necessary being is God? Why think it's a perfect being? Great. And so some people have uh, tried to uh, bridge the gap a little bit here by showing that a necessary being would have to be eternal, uh, which does seem fairly uh, plausible that a necessary being would have to exist at all times because if there's some time at which it didn't exist, then it wouldn't be necessary. It, it would be possible for it not to exist. Um, and there have been other ways in which people have tried to show that a necessary being would have some of the attributes that God has been uh, said to have. But the strategy that we talked about in episode one, I think is really applicable right here. Uh, necessary existence is a clear, uh, like classical example of uh, perfection. The, if you think about what a perfect being would like, you would want to say it would exist no matter what. It couldn't fail to exist. Mm -hmm. And if we think that there is, in fact, a necessary being, something that, and it's actually an explanation of all the contingent stuff that's out there, then a good explanation of there being a necessary being, you might think, is that there is a being that has all the perfections. And that's, that's the necessary being. Right. So it has some perfections. It has necessary existence. And also things like it causal power to make contingent things, apparently, mm -hmm. and it's eternal and so on, like you were saying. And so like, okay, so why, why does it have those perfections? Well, other things being equal, best explanation, because it has all the perfections. Yeah. So just take that as uh, the beginning of the cumulative case right there. That's yep. like the first stitch in the yeah. In the you know cross stitch argument or whatever analogy we want to use. Right. Yeah. It's our first sort of pointer to a perfect being. Right. Yeah.